Why can't all religions just get along? Have you heard that question? Have you asked that question? Why can we say that each of us are just following a higher power? For each of us, that higher power might be different, but in the end, it all leads to the same place. Why can we just assume that we're all in the same boat, following in our own way our own views of God? Why can't we assume that all religions are different paths that ultimately lead to the same destination? There are a number of answers to these questions. But one of the most important answers is the following. All religions are not the same. And one of the most important reasons why they're not the same is because of Jesus Christ. The claims that Christ makes about himself, about who he is, and why he came to us make other religions incompatible. Now, as we have seen last week, the origins and the identity of Jesus make him absolutely different than any other founder of any other religion. The founder of Christianity has no beginning because even at the beginning, he already existed. He is the light of the world. He became flesh so that those who receive him might be given the authority to be called children of God, born of God. And this was his mission, to come and to give life. Friends, no other founder of religion claims such high aspirations about his origins, about his identity, or about his mission. Today we continue our study of the Gospel of John, and in some way today's sermon will continue to unpack the identity of Jesus. And the theme we will look at this morning is, what's the big deal about Jesus? What's the big deal about Jesus? His mission is closely wrapped around his identity, and actually the reason why he can give life is because of who he is and where he came from. Would you open Scripture this morning to John chapter 1? We'll be reading from verse 19 to 51. If you're using this morning one of the Bibles provided in the chair in front of you, um, you may find this passage on page number 920. 920. We are, for those of you who are new this morning to our service, we are in a study on the Gospel of John. We began two weeks ago. We'll be going in for a few weeks, then we'll take a break, and we'll come back to it for a few more weeks before Easter uh, is here. But let's look at John chapter 1, verse 19 through 51. Now this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem, some priests and Levites, to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. They asked him, Then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. Finally they said, Who are you? 
Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of the one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now some Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, Why then do you baptize if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany, on the other side of the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would have not known him except the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen him, and I testify that this is the Son of God. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent that day with him. It was about the tenth hour. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who had heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Kephas, which means, when translated, Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, Follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, 
You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. He then added, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us and for our hearts. Let's ask God to reveal himself through his spirit to all of us. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank you that you have given us so many testimonies about the identity of Jesus. And even in the passage we have just read, we are overflown by the many titles given to who Jesus is. Father, we pray, would you give us your spirit so that we may understand these titles, that they may come real and understand the significance they have for us. Father, we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, this week I was talking to a member, one of our members, who was trying, has been trying to speak about God to his roommates. And one of the questions that he felt he has to address is the following. Why should anyone want to follow Jesus? And he's thinking about this question because he wants to talk to his roommates about it. Why should anyone want to follow Jesus? And he and I went back and forth to some typical answers. Is it simply because people will get a ticket to heaven? Is it simply because Jesus gives us a better life or a better marriage? Hey, Start following Jesus. He'll give you a better marriage, a better life. Or is it because he helps us to deal with our fears and anxieties? Oh, if you have Jesus, everything will, will be great in your life. You'll have no problems. Why would we tell people to follow Jesus? In some ways, a passage we just read answers this question. On first inspection, our text is filled with elements that seem unrelated to one another. Uh, look with me briefly. First, we have the testimony of John the Baptist, a testimony which we are told about in the introduction of the gospel. Now here, we have it spelled out. It's from verse 19 all the way to verse 34. That's the first section of our text. Then the second part, we have the testimony of two of John's disciples who actually decided to follow Jesus, not John. Change of loyalties, but a good one supposed to be this way. And then they recruit one of their brothers to come to Jesus. And we see their testimony. So this is from verse 35 to 42. That's a second set of testimonies. And then we have a final set of testimonies. We have Jesus doing some of his own recruiting of new disciples. He found Philip. Philip goes and calls his uh, brother Nathaniel. We hope, we think it's his brother Nathaniel. And all of them meet Jesus and all of this happens from verse 43 to 51, and there's some dialogue in between. Now, even though these verses initially seem to have little in common, one of the red threads that is going through these accounts is that they tell us what is the big deal about Jesus. In a way, they fulfill what the introduction was, was promising us. It's going to tell us who this man called Jesus is and why is he so important? And this question is, is for us also 
Why do people choose to follow Jesus? Why do these new disciples respond positively to him? Why should we also follow Jesus? And if you are in dialogue with friends, co-workers, or neighbors, or roommates about talking to them about Jesus, perhaps this will give you some answers about why you should tell them to consider following Jesus. Well, let's look at the answers of, of what, what is the big deal about this Jesus. Again, this entire gospel is written to answer this question, but in some way, the passage we just read gives us some very specific questions or answers. The, the one common thing in all these accounts is that each of the men in these, in these accounts say something about him. Actually, between verse 19 and 51, there are seven significant titles given about Jesus. These three sets of testimonies of witnesses, John the Baptist, then John's disciples, and these new disciples that Jesus is recruiting, three sets of testimonies of, of witnesses, each of them give us a different title about Jesus. In total, there are seven titles. On top of that, you could add the name Rabbi, which is not a theologically loaded title, and you could add the name Jesus, which was like his common name. But besides these, all the other names given to Jesus are significant. They say something about who he is, and thus they answer the question, what is the big deal about Jesus? Let's, let's look at each of these. Now, for those of you who are um, concerned about finishing on time, like seven titles, does that mean we're going to have seven points in the sermon? No, we're not going to have seven points. Don't worry. We'll try, we'll try to finish on time. But, but, but there are seven things about Jesus. And, and I want to talk about some of them. Some of them are so important that we have given a different sermon for each of these names. We have done that in the, in the month of December when we looked at the gospel without Christmas. And we gave a sermon for three other names in this text. Jesus, son of, Jesus, um, king of Israel, was the first one. Jesus, son of man, was the second. And third, Jesus, son of God. All these are, are given here in this text. We are not going to unpack these today because I have given a separate sermon. And if you're interested to know what we have said about each of these titles, please refer back to our website. We have copies, uh, or to our church office, we have copies of the sermons. But I'd like to look at some of the other titles that we have not looked at this morning, and we'll, we'll, look, at, we'll look at that. At John's testimony, first of all. John's testimony. The identity of Jesus is presented on the backdrop of the Jewish leaders sending to John the Baptist uh, some people, some of their scribes, to ask him about his identity. Look at verse 19. Who are you? And John clarifies that he was neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. So they replied, if you're none of these, if you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet, why do you baptize? In other words, John's ministry of calling people to be baptized was very puzzling to these Jews. If he was not one of these three expected figures. And John's answer is in verse 27, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know. And this is a theme of what came up in the, in the introduction. In the introduction, we were told that the light came into the world. Light shone in darkness. 
But darkness has not understood it. Darkness has not recognized it. And the people to whom Jesus came did not receive him. And John the Baptist here says something similar. One is standing among you and you do not know him. This tells us something very important about Jesus' childhood. Jesus had a childhood not full of miracles so that when he would grow up and, and start his public ministry, people would say, wow, look at his resume. Look at everything he has done. He must be the Messiah. No, Jesus' childhood was so mundane and so normal that when he was about to begin his public ministry, Nobody could say, oh, it must be him. That's why G John the Baptist was sent. John the Baptist was sent so that the ministry and identity of Jesus would be revealed to Israel. And this is the explicit purpose John gives in verse 31. John says, I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. So in this gospel, the most explicit reason why John was baptizing was so that Jesus might be revealed to his people. It was while Jesus came to John to be baptized that John assigns two key titles to Jesus which are assigned nowhere in the other three gospels. The first one is in verse 29. John says, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the second one is in verse 30, 34. Now, in the NIV, the verse, verse 34 says, He is the Son of God. But other translations, and I, I, I tend to favor this, these other translations on this, on this particular verse, say He is God's chosen one. Two titles, Lamb of God and God's chosen one. Both of them are significant, have significant meanings and are uniquely revealed on Jesus' occasion of baptism. Now, the background for the phrase, Lamb of God, is very rich. You actually, you can look in the Old Testament, and there's at least eight different parts that you can look in the Old Testament to find the identity or the background for this phrase, Lamb of God. Uh, one of them is, and probably the, the first one, is in the passage we read earlier in the service, in Genesis chapter 22, when God calls Abraham to bring as a sacrifice, his own son, his only son, whom Abraham loves, to bring him on a sacrifice on a mountain. And Abraham takes his son. It's a very, it's a very difficult test. It's, it is a test that God gave Abraham. And God, Abraham brings his son, goes up the mountain, and on that journey of Abraham and his son walking up the, up the mountain, Isaac asks his father, the fire and wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham responded, God himself will provide a lamb for the birth offering. God himself will provide a lamb. And when reaching the top of the mountain, Abraham gets ready to, to sacrifice his son, but God intervened. And that experience was a test for Abraham to see that Abraham that has that kind of faith in God that Abraham is willing to obey God even in the most unthinkable request. But that was a test. It was a test that was foreshadowing, though, that a time will come when God himself will provide his own son. 
to be sacrificed. And on that day, no one will intervene to stop the sacrifice. How amazing that at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, now John identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God. Significant. One of the things about Abraham's story is that in Abraham's case, there's a little difference. The lamb that Abraham sacrificed, ended up sacrificing, was not for the purpose of covering sins. God doesn't call Abraham to, to sacrifice this lamb because Abraham was, was sinful and because Abraham had to cover for a particular sin. It was simply an offering brought to test Abraham's faith. But John, when he describes Jesus as the Lamb of God, he gives us another sentence, a, a few extra words that are critical. He says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this is a significant reason for, for, for the Lamb of God. And, and this tells us that there must be not only the background of Abraham sacrificing Isaac, but there must be also another background. Where is John seeing this idea of, of the Lamb of God taking away the sin of the world? Well, one of the, one of the places would be the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 42, actually there are two parts in Isaiah I want to read to you. At chapter 42, here's what it says. God says, here's my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. Now this is a key text to understand why the baptism of Jesus was a context in which Jesus was going to be revealed to Israel. At Jesus' baptism, God opened the heavens and poured out His Spirit on Jesus as a symbol of, in a symbol of a dove descending on Jesus' shoulders. Now, one thing we have to realize, this does not mean that the Spirit of God was not on Jesus prior to this moment. Remember, Jesus' conception was through the Spirit coming on Mary. Jesus had this Holy Spirit in Him, but there's a sense in which now when He's about to begin His ministry, the Holy Spirit is descended upon Christ in a greater measure. And God uses this idea, this, this descending of the Spirit in a symbol of a dove, to be the secret code by which John the Baptist would recognize who Jesus really is. Now, they are cousins. John the Baptist and Jesus were relatives. But apparently they have not seen each other because John the Baptist would, did not know who the Messiah really was. He knew about the Messiah. He knew he would be a great figure, so great that he's unworthy to untie even his, his sandals. But John did not really know how to put a face with a name, if you would. He knew about the Messiah, but he just didn't know how he looked or who exactly he was. So God gives this, this secret code to John. He says, the one on whom the Spirit will descend, the one on whom you will see the Spirit descending, he is the one. Now notice here in, in Isaiah, God says, here's my servant whom I hold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. This is why the revealing of Jesus was significant. It happened in the, his baptism. 
Jesus is revealed to Israel in the moment when the Spirit comes down to him on Jesus. But then a few chapters later, in, cha in, verse, in chapter 52, here's what the prophet goes on saying. It's a little longer text. Bear with me. It's worth, worth listening to. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13 and following. See my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted, just as there were many who were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So will he sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told they will see, and what they have not heard they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of a dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took, upon, he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned away to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. The servant of the Lord. The servant on whom God would pour out his spirit. The ser servant whom God upholded is also the servant who in chapter 52 and 53 is described not only as a chosen one, but also as a lamb on which are placed the iniquities of God's people. How amazing that now John, the Baptist, affirms each of these titles about Jesus when he sees him. Lamb of God, chosen one, in the context of the Spirit descending on Jesus, and, on the, and this is on the occasion of his baptism. Friends, God has provided a lamb, his own lamb, his chosen one. The lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And this is a big deal about Jesus which no other religious founder claimed to do or pretended to be able to do, to deal with the sin of the world in his own body, which was slain for us. That's why we should talk to people about Jesus. That's why we should tell them to follow Jesus, because he is the Lamb of God. Friend, if you're new to Christianity, or if you know someone who's new to Christianity or just doesn't know it, the message of the gospel is that we cannot deal with our own sin and put it away. I mean, there's a way in which all of us deal with our own sin in the sense of we will experience its consequences. In that sense, every one of us pays for our sins. And we will do that for an eternity. 
unless, unless we trust in the one who paid for our sins in the sense that he also wiped them away. This is the message of the gospel. And we cannot deal with our own sins and pay for them in order to wipe them away. But God provided a way. God provided a solution. He sent His own Son who came as a Lamb of God, as His servant, as His chosen one, who had His Spirit on Him. And friends, as God's chosen one, He took away our sin. Friend, this is a message of the gospel which we're called to believe. We're called to accept. We're called to receive. Yet I must warn you, even though we are told that as Lamb of God, Jesus took away the sins of the world, that does not mean that everyone in the world automatically will be saved. The Bible is very clear that only those who respond to Christ by repentance and faith, only they will be given the right to be called children of God. Friend, if that is your belief this morning, I pray and hope that you would you will respond to Christ by surrendering your life and believing in Him. And when you do that, in that moment, in this moment, God brings to you His Spirit. He gives you a new birth. If, if that's your prayer and that's your desire this morning, I'd love to talk to you at the end of the service. It's something that happens in your heart as you hear these words. But friend, back to the question, why are we called to follow Jesus? Not simply so that we can go to heaven. Not simply so that we can have a better life. Not simply so that God will solve all our problems. We want to follow Jesus because He is the only one who took away our sin. He is the only one who took away the sin of the world. This is John's testimony. Now let's look at the testimony of John's disciples. When two of John's disciples hear what, what their master has said about this man called Jesus, that he's the Lamb of God, they follow Jesus. They start following him. And what is the question they ask him? Where do you live? What a strange question to ask to the one who is just assigned as the Lamb of God. Why would they care about where Jesus lived? Why did they ask a little more theologically deep question? Hey, Jesus, what did John mean when he said you're the Lamb of God? No, they didn't ask these kind of questions. They just, hey, where do you live? Why did they ask the question? I don't know. I don't. And apparently, Jesus says, come and see. Jesus gives them the, the, the details, come and see. He takes them over. They spend the night over because it was late. Interestingly, John doesn't tell us where that was. Oh, how I wish. How I wish John would have given us the details. What was Jesus' bedroom like? You know, did he, did he have a big house, a small house? Did he have a garage? Did he have a nice car or not? Of course, th those are anachronistic. But what was Jesus' address? So we could really make a museum out of that place. John does not give us the address because he's not interested to tell us the address. Because John is interested to tell us Jesus is the Son of God. John didn't give us his birth date. Remember? In John's gospel, Jesus does not have a birthday because he's from the beginning. And in John's gospel, Jesus does not have an address. 
because his home is not from here. So I don't know what these disciples saw. But one of the things that these disciples of John said about Jesus when they go and find their brother is, hey, we have found the Messiah. That is the Christ. Now, every Jew was expecting, and they knew what the Messiah meant. It, it literally meant, the, the Hebrew word for the Messiah literally meant God's anointed one. And most of the times that referred to God's anointed king, the king God would choose for Israel. The, the Messiah, that, I mean, if you want to know the, the Hebrew, a Hebrew word, I know one word in Hebrew, that's the word Messiah. It means God's anointed king. The point is, that word Messiah is translated in the Greek language as the word Christos. We have the word Christ. Now, this is significant for us. When you and I typically think of Jesus Christ, we think that Jesus is his first name and Christ is his last name. But it was not so at the beginning. Rather, the name Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word, which literally means God's anointed one or God's anointed king. It's like this. If I, if I were to talk to or call out Paul Horton and tell you about Paul Horton, I would say, no, Paul the pilot, because he's a pilot. You, you say the first name, and then you say his title or what he does or his role. In a similar way, when we think of the word Jesus Christ, it's supposed to mean Jesus, the anointed king. That's the point. That's the point of the Messiah. And these Jews said, hey, we have found the anointed king. We have found the Messiah. Now, friends, when understood in this way, the big deal about Jesus is that he came as God's anointed king. This means that even, you, even though even when we use this name, Jesus Christ, we should immediately think of his kingship, of his reign. And by the way, one little detail. Jesus' kingship, Jesus as a king was appointed not in a, in a democ democratic way. Like, hey, he's king because we chose him to be king. It says it's God's anointed king. That means God chose him for us. We did not have a say in whether or not God, Jesus would be God's chosen king. God anointed Jesus as king. And now we're called to receive that and to acknowledge that and to submit to that and respond to that. So friends, what's the big deal about Jesus? He is the anointed king. Now, you may say, well, hold on. He, you just said he's a lamb, the lamb of God, and now he's the anointed king. How does a lamb and a king work together? I mean, those are not very compatible pictures. You know, a lamb, he's very very fragile. You know, there's nothing strong about him. He's very, both frail and, and no security system. At least a horse could be, or a lion, you know, he, he, he could defend himself. A lamb. And then a king is the opposite. He talks about authority, power. How do you combine these two things together? Well, I don't know how, but they are combined in the book of Revelation chapter 5. When John presents Jesus as sitting on the throne with God, he says, And I saw the one who was like a slaughtered lamb. The slaughtered lamb is on the throne. Jesus is both the lamb of God and he's the Messiah, the king of, of Israel. 
And these are the kind of things that tell us, yes, Jesus is huge. There's big, big, Jesus is big because He's both the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world, and He's also the King who reigns over God's people. The last account is Nathaniel. Jesus meets Nathaniel because one of his friends or brothers, uh, Philip, introduced him. And he says, we have found, Philip says this to, to Nathaniel, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote. And this is another description about Jesus. This is why it's, Jesus is a big deal. Jesus has been written about in, in, by Moses and the prophets. This means, friend, that if you ever want just to know one reason among many why you should read the Old Testament, it's because it prepares the way to talk about Jesus. It introduces us to Jesus in the very first pages of the Bible. We must understand the Old Testament as we prepare to understand the story of Jesus. I'm surprised to hear Christians even today who think less about the Old Testament because they say, well, the Old Testament is about the law. The New Testament is about God's grace. Wrong thinking. Utterly wrong thinking. The Old Testament writes about Christ. And here is one place where that comes very clearly. He is the one Moses wrote about. He's the one the prophets wrote about. And then finally, Jesus responds to Nathaniel. And in, in response, Nathaniel gives to Jesus, Oh, my Lord, you, you, are, you are the King of Israel, the Son of God. And Jesus says, listen, you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree. There's even greater things you will see. And Jesus gives a picture. You will see. I tell you the truth, verse 51. I tell you the truth, you shall see heaven open. And the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That's a wonderful picture of Jacob when he was running from his brother. And God shows up in a dream. And he, because he, and he sees a stairwell a staircase from heaven to earth. And Jacob wakes up. He sees angels coming down. He wakes up and he says, oh my goodness, this is so frightening. This is the house of God. He's frightened because he realizes he is in the presence of God and he calls that place the house of God. And now Jesus is echoing that story now and says, hey, you will see heaven open, angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The house of God is in the presence of Jesus. Jesus has come to earth to bring to us the dwelling of God. And that's why now in verse 51, finally Jesus answers and John tells us the address of Jesus. Jesus is the one who brought his home with him here to earth so that we might find our home in his household. You see how that works? That's, what, that's a big deal about Jesus. He is the one who brought to us the house of God, the dwelling of God, so that we might become partakers of God's household. So friends, when we talk about Jesus to others, when we think about why should we follow Jesus, it's not just because he, he gives us a better future, although that's true. We're called to believe in Jesus and to follow Jesus because he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin which we could not wipe away. He is the Messiah, God's anointed king. God has anointed him to rule over all creation. And a day will come when every knee and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. But friends, on that day, it will be too late to change allegiances. Just like John's disciples 
We are called to change allegiances and follow this Jesus. And what's the big deal about Jesus? It is because he has brought to us the home from heaven. And we are now becoming allowed to be part of God's household. Friend, I pray that if you, if you don't know how to talk about Jesus in this way, I pray that you would use some of these truths in John's gospel to speak to your friends and co-workers about Jesus in this way. But if you don't know him yourself, you've not received him, you've not accepted him, I pray that today would be the day when you respond to Christ and thus be a part of his household and part of his family. Let's bow our heads and pray.